This is Monocle on Design, a show where we unpack everything from architecture and craft to furniture and fashion. I'm Nick Manise. On today's program, we meet the co-founders of the pan-European design brand Project 213A. Cutlery specialist David Meller give us a sneak peek at their headquarters and factory. Plus, Yabu Puschelberg and Linye Rosé discuss creative collaborations. All that coming up on Monocle on Design. Project 213A was founded in London in 2020 by four young creatives. Their goal? To create long-lasting and unique furniture and home accessories. Today, the brand's founders are spread across Europe, but they're united by their commitment to production in Portugal. All of their wares, from sofas to ceramics, are made in partnership with Iberian craftspeople. I caught up with co-founders Maria Morat and Teresa Marx at a recent showcase they hosted in Paris. I was keen to find out how their team works across disciplines and collaborates with makers in Portugal. We hear from Teresa first. We started off making mainly stoneware pieces. They were hand-built and then we made molds from them to be able to create stock, get into shops, which helped us a lot with spreading our name a little bit because we had really good stockists. As we kind of grew, we realised we really like the really close aspect with our customers, the bespoke world of things, customization in general, also the slower process behind a lot of things. Just our side tables, they take a very long time to make. They need to dry the base first. It needs to be continued the week after. I think just building the whole structure takes a minimum of four weeks. And I feel the customer who's willing to wait that long will appreciate that piece forever and hopefully keep it for a whole lifetime. That's the whole philosophy that I feel like we really want to drive to more and work on a slower pace. Maria, I want to I ask about the craftspeople that you work with and, the, and the, the fabricators that you work with. How do you find those people to work with? How do you like seek them out? How do you find a ceramicist that is willing to experiment and play with you guys? You get Rita has been able to build an amazing network in Portugal. She's been there for how many years now, Teresa? Six, seven. Initially, she's a shoe designer and bag designer. Through her factories there, she found other factories in furniture, in ceramics. She's helped to build the connections there. You mentioned she works in fashion, but none of you studied furniture. Is that correct? You've all kind of come from, from different backgrounds. How do you... So, <laughs> so, so, I mean, that's what I want to ask about. I mean, like, you're working across different disciplines now. How does that then start to apply to furniture or ceramics or any of that? I do very much believe you can apply a lot of aspects of design into all of the different fields of it. There's still, like, the research that needs to be done, the development process. If it is furniture or if it would be fashion, you still have to go through this whole creative process. You still have your own aesthetics and... Maybe because we worked in fashion and we ended up maybe going to like Bodega Veneta, to the stores. The whole experience starts with the architecture as well. Mm. Like if you arrive in a shop, you don't necessarily see the jacket right away. See this amazing marble staircase and it's this whole scenario. And I feel like architecture and fashion, interior design and fashion, they are weirdly related. And how does that translate to your material selections? Do you think not coming from, you know, like a, a traditional furniture yeah. school background. Has that influenced what you've ended up creating? Heavily. To be honest, we made a lot of mistakes. Oh, I wouldn't really say they were mistakes. It's more like we're like, oh, this is beautiful material, let's try it. And then while we're working with it, we learned, all right, this didn't work. Or this worked better than everybody ever thought. And 
I think because we're not too focused on what's technically speaking possible, we try to make it work and it does work most of the times and we even surprise some of the people we work with that didn't believe in it at first and now we have a footstool that you're sitting on. <laughs> it's got uh, toes carved into it. I know you stopped short of painting the toenails, but like, how do you convince, like a, I guess, an elderly Portuguese woodworker to carve toes into a stool? Maria, I don't know if you want to take this one. This, I have to give you Gita credit for because she was there at the time and she's like, it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> and you just have to keep telling them it's possible. Now, we have a lot of listeners who are designers, who are young creatives, you're now four years into this project. For other people listening, like, are there any sort of like tips that you can give for people that are that are wanting to start out and that are creatives, maybe for working for someone else that want to strike out on their own? Is there something to starting small with like ceramics, like you did, or, or are there other things that you've picked up along the way? My biggest advice is don't hold back. When we've been working for a whole year on project before we even launched. And the moment we launched our website was the most underwhelming <laughs> event ever. We went live. I don't know what we expected, that our stock will run out within 10 minutes, that we have 5,000 people visiting the website. Nothing happened. And only after we said, right, we're going to go forward with it, only then you learn the feedback you get from a customer, you see if pictures perform well, you realize, okay, the prototype that we're going out now didn't end up working the way we wanted to you won't know where you're gonna end up if you don't start it that's my biggest advice because I feel very often we were a little bit too shy to just sample something because we imagined it and then you suddenly have the real thing in front of you and it can end up being very different good or bad but you need to get to that point to then improve it or just sign it off because you're happy with it some of these pieces that we're looking at now we're sitting on like a metallic sofa there's like a, a lounge chair made out of mirror surfaces is there a part of you that's like this is a risk to do it but we're going to do it anyway how do you start to overcome that fear is it, is it just to literally make it like like you were saying Teresa, or is there something else I never considered like the brave part of it it's more like this is cool let's do it but I guess as well like because we're four people Sometimes we just throw this one idea out and then everyone's like, yeah, that's good. If we do take a decision because it's four people bagging it, we don't really doubt it quite as much, which I guess is a luxury being not a single designer uh, or like a single person running a brand. Teresa Marks and before that, Maria Morat. Next, we take a trip to Northern England to visit David Mellor Design, a company known for making some of the UK's most celebrated cutlery. Monocle's Charlie Filmer Court recently visited the brand's headquarters and factory in the Peak District National Park. There, he met the team and found out a little more about their approach to design and manufacturing. David Mellor had an outsized impact on British design over the course of his life. As royal designer for industry, he shaped much of the street furniture that we recognise today, from traffic lights to bus shelters to pillar boxes. As well as influencing the public realm, he was also one of the country's foremost cutlery designers, which is what his eponymous company still specialises in today. The company is headquartered in Hathersage, a picturesque village in the Peak District National Park. It's a beautiful site which is nestled in between rolling hills, 
and houses almost every aspect of the business, including the Sir Michael Hopkins-designed cutlery factory and the design museum. It is also where David's son Corin, who took over as creative director in 2006, designed new product lines and prototypes. Really, it all started off with my father's design for a range of cutlery called Pride that he designed when he was a, a student at the Royal College of Art in London way back in 1951. And that design was chosen from the student show by a big Sheffield manufacturer called Walker and Hall, who put that radical cutlery design into manufacture, and it proved to be a, a huge success. So I, I sort of think that really was the starting point of the company. We have a worldwide reputation for knives and forks, but we are a very small family-run little company. We have retail shops. We have two shops in London. We have a retail shop here. We manufacture, so we actually have our own little cutlery factory where we make knives and forks. We're a design company. So we design things for ourselves and also collaborations with other designers and artists. We're an importer. We also export quite a substantial amount of our designs all around the world. Over the last 70 years, obviously, the, the company has developed. How would you describe the company's overall design philosophy uh, and, and your approach to design? The overall design philosophy really is that the designs are perhaps not trying too hard. We do elegant, quiet design. Interestingly, the design philosophy hasn't changed at all. I think the design philosophy remains exactly the same as it was in 1951. And I suppose we're very materials orientated. Designs, for me, have to fundamentally work. They have to perform the function that you're designing the object to do. That's the most important. And I'm very much a sort of believer in, in form follows function to a certain extent. Now, the brand has extraordinary heritage, really, from a design perspective. Could you talk us through some of the most popular and perhaps the most enduring designs that are on offer as part of David Meller? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting question. And actually, it does create a bit of a problem for me as a designer because many of the, the designs going back to the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s are all still very popular. And I believe that people should be able to buy a product many years down the line. I don't really believe in design following fashion too much. So as a designer, that, that sort of sent me off in different directions because I'm limited to the amount of cutlery designs that we can actually retail. <laughs> Ironically, our biggest selling design today is the original design that my, my father designed in, in 1951, Pride, which to me really does show that if you can do a good design that stands the test of time, you've done a good job. And when I'm designing a new design, I very much am trying to focus on, on that design having a quality that will endure time. I mean, to me as a designer, that's really important. I'm not really designing something that is a huge hit and then suddenly out of fashion. That's not what I want. I want my cup and saucer to look as good in 10 years' time as it does today. So we're here in your Hathersage HQ. And, you know, this this kind of complex, particularly the round building, has won numerous architectural awards. As a design business, how important is it for you, and I guess as a designer, to surround yourself with beautiful design and to be in a space that can help your creativity? 
the built environment is, is hugely important. I've always had an interest in architecture and buildings and interior spaces. For me to actually manufacture a good product, making that in a good building just makes sense. And our factory is sort of immaculate as factories go. And I sort of think you get a better product and perhaps people are happier as well. And the same goes for our retail spaces as well. We design everything, you know, so we do design knives and forks, but we also design our shops and we design the shelves they fit on. We design the staircase that you walk down in our Marlebone shop. So the whole environment is, is vastly important to me, really. And continuing on concerning your HQ here in Hathersage, it's in the north. It's not in London. And that's quite a unique thing in terms of the design industry, which can be quite London-centric in the UK. Why did you decide to, to kind of have your HQ here? And how important is it for you to, to kind of keep this presence in the north? I've sort of bridged both London and the north, but certainly as a place to make things, the north is substantially better for us. We are in the Peak District National Park, but we're only eight miles away from Sheffield and we still use a lot of the Sheffield trades that are still left. Uh, we have silver plating done in Sheffield. We have injection moulding done in Barnsley. So the north has always been a really good place to actually make things and also a lot of our skilled workers come from the heritage industries that Sheffield is famous for so those skills are inherent with the people. And on this site you you also have a design museum not only does it have a lot of kind of the most famous items of cutlery and, and kitchenware from the David Mellor range but it also showcases your father's work as an industrial designer it showcases some of your work outside of the, the sphere that perhaps David Mellor Design is best known as. How important is it for you to showcase this side of things and perhaps make people aware of the legacy of the brand as well? I think it's incredibly important. And I think almost one of the things I'm most proud of doing on this site was I built a, what I call the David Mellor street scene because not many people know that my father designed the traffic lights that you stop at every day, as well as bus stops and bollards. So when you actually enter the site, you walk through the David Mellor street scene showing you this archive of these amazing designs for the, the built environment. And I suppose what's happened is the site has gradually developed. We did the famous round building designed by Michael Hopkins. And really because of the architecture, people started coming here. The whole site has gradually evolved into what it is now. And it's big enough, I think, now as, as a sort of draw for people to actually come to. It's a sort of destination, little mecca, really, of design in the north. Now, Hathersage is probably not the first place you'd expect to find the headquarters of an internationally renowned design business. However, its location tells a story in itself. It's just a stone's throw from the city of Sheffield, which during the 19th and 20th centuries was one of the global centres for steel manufacturing and metalwork, earning it the moniker Steel City. Sheffield was also where David Mellor began his career over 70 years ago. And despite the decline in industry, the company retained strong links to the city, not least because there is still a vast pool of skilled workers with invaluable metalwork knowledge that has been passed down from generation to generation. Someone that personifies this is factory manager Andrew Chisilovich, who joined David Meller straight out of school in the 1970s and has been with the company ever since. Andrew took me on a tour of the factory and taught me through the David Meller way of working. 
you've been working here for over 40 years. Yeah. How has the, the kind of manufacturing process changed over that time? By the looks of it, lots of it's still quite similar. You've hit the nail on the head there by saying it looks very similar. It, it is really the procedure, I would say, right from the 1800s, hasn't changed to what we do today. The only difference being that you've got modern machinery that's actually helping you to achieve that same principle as what it was before. I'm, I'm walking around seeing all the team at work, kind of filing down the different items of cutlery, pressing the names into it. You know, there's a lot of skill here. A lot of that skill set comes from nearby Sheffield. Are there many other businesses still doing it this way? I think there might be just a handful. It's ironic the fact that a lot of it now has tended to go back to what we used to call years ago the Little Mesters, where you used to have little like workshops and people are producing things obviously by hand, but it'd be just like a very small workforce, which is a good thing because there is a market out there for quality rather than quantity. The factory is unique in that, for all intents and purposes, it doesn't look like a factory. It's light, it's airy, it's, you know, it's got a modern design. It's not yeah. what you think of when you think of industry. Yeah. How important is that to you and the team? And you know, does it make quite a lovely place to work? Yes, it certainly does. I used to go many, many years going to Sheffield, and I used to go to a lot of these other places where they used to manufacture cutlery, and it was so depressing. The great thing about the round building, it's all neat and tidy, which is a better environment in which to work, and obviously then that reflects what we are actually producing. Yeah, do you think that that attention to detail, paying attention to where you're working, do you think that's what sets David Meller cutlery and design apart? Oh, definitely. We we're always down to getting the detail correct. All the shapes have to be spot on. You do tend to start getting an eye for knowing exactly what it should look like when it's finished. Once it doesn't look correct, obviously then, as David used to say, you can't put the metal back on again. So you've ruined it. It's one of these philosophies that we always try and do everything as best we can. And in most cases, it looks pretty good when it's finished. During my visit, Corin Meller pointed out to me that we use knives and forks for hundreds of hours per year. So why not make them a pleasure to use? It's an approach that perhaps goes some way to explaining the company's success over the last 70 years. After all, throughout its history, the company has remained unwavering in its belief in doing things the right way, from a design's initial sketches right through to its manufacture. It's why David Meller cutlery can be found in numerous British embassies some of the world's best restaurants, and in the homes of many loyal customers across the globe. And having seen firsthand the care that goes into each and every product, it's not difficult to see why. For Monocle, I'm Charlie Phil McCourt. French furniture brand Ligné Rosé has been manufacturing in eastern France since 1860. The family-owned firm continues to champion artisans thanks to its company-owned factory, which ensures the delivery of quality furniture. It's also securing its reputation by producing new designs in partnership with top architecture firms, such as Toronto and New York-based Yabu Puschelberg. The two recently teamed up on a new collection. Called Puka, it includes curvaceous and comfortable armchairs, sofas and ottomans. To find out more about the collaboration and the two firms, I caught up with Yabu Puschelberg's George Yabu and Glenn Puschelberg, as well as Ligne Rosé's co-CEO, Olivia Rosé. But first, we hear from George Yabu. 
Puka means uh, the English took that from uh, colonial days of India, right? Mm-hmm. And it right. means authenticity, the real deal. And so when you see Puka, there's nothing else hidden there's under there. There's a clarity to it. Yes, yes. there's a clarity. Uh, exactly. I like the Puka because it's a friendly chair. It, yeah, it's, it's very a happy. happy chair. It's an emotive chair. Mm-hmm. They came with the this molding, they came with the old foam products. That's the talent because they have a way to reinterpret, to reintroduce something new, in fact, because you have seen a lot of old foam products in the web, but Puka is new because Puka is seen, Puka is a it's like a it's super round, it's super comfortable, very it's adaptable. The DNA of Lynn Rosé is the old form products for, for, for sure. But it's a new project. In fact, when you have seen lots of projects, you say, okay, this is new. Because it's very tense in a way. Yeah. And uh, also it was not easy to find the fabric because uh, yeah. to yes. have uh, any wrinkles because the product is very round. Yes. So you have techniques, but we are speaking about emotion because at the end, that's one of the strengths of the company, the development team that they have met and also their team because they are a, a huge team also. The people, they are really passionate. And when they come, they can speak hours in front mm. of a sofa. Yeah. <laughs> We're always interested in heritage and what came before. Your company has a very strong style aesthetic that rediscovered the yeah. French, that mm-hmm. French style. And a lot of it was, I don't mean to sound insulting, but an obsession with a, with a lot of the, the details in historically, not specifically what you have done, with, starting with your father, <laughs> but... And the French aesthetic was um, pushed to the side a bit for a while. And we thought, oh, there's a lot to mine there. I want to ask, I guess, about the yeah the, the future of the French style, the French aesthetic, <laughs> y- y- your French brand. <laughs> you, you mentioned heritage, George, and you talked about the Togo off-air, which is this yeah. like, uh, chair. This is a two-part question. How, firstly, how does the work <laughs> you're doing with Puka fit in with uh, your vision, I hope, for this long-lasting piece of design? I'll tell you a quick little story. I was in Hamburg, was seeing another client, and I walked by a, a, a very serious fashion shop, and there was the puka in the, it's as, as a sitting area, and it looked quite noble there. And then we've seen the puka in a children's play area and, and a finer hotels as more playful. And so yeah. what I like about the puka, it has enough style to it, and it can be feel tailored in the right environment, or it can feel joyful. Adaptable. Yes, yes. Mm. Well, that's the, an interesting comparison from a kid's room to something that has um, Teutonic rigor. Going back to style, the shape and, f- and form is iconic, I think. 20 years from now, I hope Togo and Puka are holding hands together. That's our yes. hope. You have to be very humble because we try to create some, some icons every time because we love products, we love design. So, But sometimes you're too in advance, sometimes you're too late, sometimes the price is too high. So when you have all the green lights together, and I hope that's what we have done with Puka because it's simple. It's adaptable, it's uh, new in something already seen, but it's new, it's joyful. What's the difference for a family business like us when we are working with designers is we have the money and we have the right to create and to take time because it's a family business and we make some mistakes, some products, but we never make mistakes with the relation that we have because we have a relationship with the designers and it's Mm -hmm. lasting. And one day we have a great product together and sometimes it's not the good one, but I think Puka will be there for tomorrow. What was really fun about working on Puka is exactly that, because we made decisions right on the floor. It's not like we went to some other company that would say, some investor group that bought a furniture company. Oh, 
It's really interesting. I quite like it. Let me get back to you. Because they don't want to make a decision on their yeah, own. Let's go to the marketing department. Let's yeah. go to the yeah. blah, blah, blah department. Yeah. You talk there about the strength of a family business and this idea that your name's on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> your name's on the door. I don't want to make too much mistake. <laughs> exactly. So so your name's on the door. So you, you know, it's the same for them. If you can take the time, if you can actually make something that is going to last, you've invested in quality, it's not about ticking marketing boxes right. or the lowest common denominator to make something for your company's faceless right. owners somewhere off in the United States. If you're actually making something because you're putting your name on it, do you think that leads to a more sustainable product, to a more timeless to de- design, to something that's actually mm. going to last? I think that it's true. We talk about sustainability and stuff. And one aspect of sustainability that people don't talk about is creating a product that you will always keep. We went through the 70s and 80s of throwaway furniture I start mm. with, that Swedish brand, and then I throw mm. that away at night. I migrate to more expensive brands. And this notion of throwing away I think it's, qual- it's all about keeping. You're, you're right. Quality is the first sustainability. If you have something that you have the quality, you may keep it for years. When you put the name, your name, you don't say that you will make a success at the end, but you make everything. It's the same for you in your yeah. home or in your friends, in your project. You will try your best. And try your best is a good way to make good things. And for us, we don't. We consciously look at trends. And there are trends in furniture design like there are trends in everything else on Earth. And it's important to us to avoid them and, and for each thing that we design to have its an individual voice. In that way, you are hopeful that things last and that they resonate with people. I think that we like to create stories. And even if, if it's an interior or a garden or a piece of furniture, I think that Glenn and I are good at connecting with the story with the maker as our partner. It's not easy to get that synergy right with a lot of makers, even the top ones on your level in different countries. It's really a, a difficult thing to get the parts together. So the story in, but it has to be meaningful. Again, Puka has to be authentic where you came from, your roots, and right. not one weighted huh? this way or one right. weighted the it's other way. It's a couple. I think it's really important to understand. We like the long-term partnership and stories between the designers because we are knowing each other better and better. And after you start to know what's the DNA of the company, what's the DNA of the agency, what they, they like to do, what they don't like to do, you try to disturb them. That's why we like to exchange for years and all the people because we are working only with designers. When I was a child, there is having Didier Gomez Pascal Moore at home, they were having so many designers. That's why it's complicated because they are becoming, we are partners, we are friends, we we mix everything together like in a couple just to produce something that is really a personal. That's why sometimes you have very nice success and sometimes you are not a success, but it's not the problem. It belongs to the story when you like to develop products to have this long-term relationship. Well, we're talking about heritage here, but we're also talking about the future. In terms of your own individual work, what what are the priorities for you moving forward in the next two, five, ten sort of years? What direction do you want to see your respective firms tracking in? I would like to do companion piece or pieces for the first piece of furniture that we did. And what could live with that and doesn't have to have any of the story or the DNA that Puka had, we can make different stories. But it would be nice, I'm hesitant to say collection for you. I prefer to say companion pieces. It's a bit more subtle and not like Mm -hmm. a a forced grouping. 
I like your notion, George, like a dialogue between the dichotomy of what Puka represents and what something else could be. Berlin Rosette, that would be super interesting as a project. And for us, I think you're right completely. What we start together a bit like a collection already with the lighting, with something to have a DNA of our partnership, in fact, to find our own something that people say, oh, it's Yabu Pulschelberg and Rosé for sure. And that's when you have created that. The, the past has start with Puka. After years, you have some designers and some brands. I, I remember in the Iconics, the Bellini and all the other Italian all say, OK, that's him and this company. And what would be nice with Yabu and Pulschelberg together to say that we have a a partnerships become obvious, something like you have created your old capsule collection and, and that's easy for the customers and for the design and for the people. I love the way you say our name with the French accent. Uh, so <laughs> Thank you. My thanks to George Yabu and Glenn Puschelberg there and, of course, Olivier Rosé. And that's all for today's show. For more design stories, listen to our five-minute midweek bonus show, Monocle on Design Extra, which airs on Thursdays. And if you enjoy print, then do pick up a copy of Monocle magazine as well. It's on all good newsstands now. Today's episode was produced and edited by Maylee Evans. I'm Nick Manise, and you can reach me on nm at monocle.com. Thanks for listening. Listener.